Today, I have Russ Nix from AgesRx with me. For previous interviews with Russ, see our past vlogs. Russ has a lot of experience in the area of drug diversion monitoring, and because he comes from the law enforcement background, today we want to talk about interviewing. I don't know if you have seen this, Russ, but because I come from the pharmacy side of things, I usually get involved at the beginning of a suspected diversion case. My role is often to perform the detailed audits and to dig into the data surrounding the suspicion. I depend on the managers of the healthcare worker to provide insight into job performance and behaviors. And often the manager and human resources then take over the interview and speak with the healthcare worker. But too many times when they do circle back to me with their conclusion, and many times I have to seek them out for their conclusion, <laughs> it comes back as, as just poor practice and they've been educated. But if you remember, I've seen the data and there are some times when I'm pretty sure there was diversion going on and it was not just poor practice. The bottom line really is that if the person doing the interview with a suspected healthcare worker is not skilled at interviewing, has no experience with diversion, so really can't believe their staff would be diverting and therefore has a bias that there is no diversion going on even before talking to the healthcare worker, or perhaps just simply they don't like confrontation, because let's face it, this can be an uncomfortable conversation to have, then the whole investigation can fall apart. Have you seen this happen in your experience? Unfortunately, yeah, I see that all too often. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty common for the individuals that end up in charge of that interview process and the investigation uh, come from the nurse management or the pharmacy side. And while they're extremely knowledgeable in processes and procedures and, and patient care, there's a gap between that and the investigative interview. Um, and that, that kind of confrontational encounter where you've got to really drill down and find out what's going on. Um, and so having somebody who uh, comes from a law enforcement background like I do, um, it's not hard for us to figure out that there are two different personalities in play. So um, when you're looking at uh, nurse managers and pharmacists and people that have been involved in, in, in patient care, that's a nurturing personality. That's a, pay, a personality that wants to, to really see the best in people and take care of people and things like that um, and, and not confront and not have those difficult or uncomfortable encounters where uh, somebody who comes from a law enforcement background is kind of used to those encounters. They're kind of used to the uncomfortable approach, the, the conversations that aren't going to head in a, in a great place. Um, and so when you do have somebody who is suspected of a deviant behavior, and I hate to use that term, but we have to be aware that we are looking at uh, a drug diversion. We are looking at, uh, while we may or may not prosecute this person or the, you know this situation, it's no less a crime to have stolen medication from a hospital. And so um, that becomes a very uncomfortable word uh, for for a lot of people in administration, a lot of people in management, but I don't say let's go prosecute everybody. What I say is let's recognize that this is a different behavior than your other policy violations. This isn't 
you know, this isn't tardiness. This isn't um, something where they miss charting something. This isn't a training issue necessarily. This is possibly a, a theft of a drug while taking care of a patient, while doing something in the patient care process and the implications are much different. And you're dealing with somebody who has made a conscious decision to engage in that deviant behavior and engage in possibly a criminal behavior. And so that being said, the, the interview just has to be a little bit different. Um, like I said, it doesn't necessarily need to be one where we're going in to try to get somebody, so to speak, but it does need to be one where we recognize the implications that are on the tape. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you ever go with the approach of, I know you care type of a thing, and so let's get them, let's get them help. I mean, if we can get sure. them to admit or get to the bottom of this, then not only are they stealing, which is unsafe, but focus on the, you care for your staff members, so let's find out if they need help. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I really like to kind of uh, stress when when I talk to uh, anyone who's trying to build this type of process out is we, we lean so much on patient care and patient harm and how we're trying to prevent harm. Well, we have to remember that while we do have patients in beds and these caretakers are taking care of them, and now we have someone who may or may not have have stolen medication out of our hospital, that immediately not only makes them somebody we need to speak to, but that also makes them a patient. They are now someone who has an issue that needs to be treated. So when we talk about not doing patient harm, the very fact that we not only try to kind of not confront them, but we also kind of say, well, let's just say it's a training issue, let's move on. We're not only putting the patients in the beds at at risk, we're putting that person at risk as well. Um, I think the the overall goal, the ultimate pursuit is to basically be able to take care of the patients in the facility while also protecting those that are working there. And uh, if we know someone has a problem, we know someone has an addiction or there there's things that indicate that and in, in, in possible diversion, then we want to give them an opportunity to say, I, I do, I need help. I, I would like to go through something. Um, and uh, I've, I recall a, a very, uh, a, a years ago when I did an investigation and everything pointed to uh, diversion. And I did have a sit down interview with a nurse who uh, initially denied everything. Um, and then of course, through the interview process, uh, got her to admit not only had she been diverting, but she did have an addiction problem. Uh, she agreed to rehabilitation. She was moved from patient care for a period of time. It was reported, you know, because that is how mandatory reporting works. But because she agreed to go to rehabilitation, we were able to say when we reported, hey, look, there is an individual that has a diverted medication. We have removed them from patient care, but they've agreed to go and get help and our you know, recommendation as a drug divergent specialist, my recommendation was if this person makes it through rehabilitation, whether they come back to this facility or not, maybe once they're recovered, they can return to patient care and 
not have sacrificed all of that education that they had before they went down this addictive road. Um, and uh, a few months after that, I did see that individual in person and uh, they came back to tell me, thank you. And they thanked me, not so much for, you know, that uncomfortable encounter, but for the simple mm -hmm. fact that I was able to catch something and I was able to give them an opportunity to say, I need help. She went to rehabilitation. Um, she had been isolated from her family during that addiction and she'd been able to kind of heal that process while recovering from the addiction. And so it was kind of one of those moments where you go, hey, this is why we do this right here. And um, and I think that uh, I think that's really one of the biggest, you know, I'd say for me, it's one of the biggest aspects that I like to focus on is being able to say, hey, look, you know, you have someone that you need to care for here as much as you do for the ones in the bed, because either one can come to harm if you kind of don't handle it appropriately. Yeah, no, it's true. And they, you know, it's not the best day that they've had when they get caught. Sure. But you often talk to them that have recovered and they will, looking back, say that was the best day, the day I got caught because, sure. You know, they're desperate to keep the addiction going because they are addicted. They're dependent upon it. And so right. they do what they need to do and they don't want to give that up, right, so to speak, because they got to keep themselves going. But once they do um, go through that rehab and if it's successful, that's, of course, where they want to be. They don't want to be back in the they want to get out of the addiction cycle. Um, right. And so catching them and confronting them and if they can push themselves to, to get the help that they need, then that's the outcome that we want right. to get. And they're always grateful for it. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, addiction is, is clearly, you know, I think uh, a very loose definition of addiction is that continued use despite harm. And, you know, that harm can be self-harm. It can be family harm. It can be financial harm. But at the end, you know, we talk about that, but, every time you talk to someone who's been through an addiction and been through recovery, they were even aware of the harm when they were in the addiction, even when they were in it, they, they weren't sitting there going at, that they were oblivious to it. They knew what was going on. Their addiction was just stronger. Right. And so, so when you're able to kind of give them a way to get to that recovery, um, it's, it's a big, it's a big deal. And I think, um, one area that we kind of uh, glaze over it or whatever is is uh, most of the time when we look at a drug diversion situation, there is a, a, some addiction involved, but there's typically people who have invested a tremendous amount of time in some type of higher education, whether it be a pharmacist or a physician or a nurse, someone who's in patient care, they, they really pursued a lot of education they put a lot of time into whatever they were doing and in in this addiction can take that away and will it will take that away if if they're not given a, a path to make it right and so you know it's it's kind of great to be able to say hey you know let's find a way to salvage some of this and and give you an opportunity to come back the other direction now unfortunately that doesn't always happen but when it does it means that your program is is doing what it was designed to do yeah and there's a lot of you know there's there's 
a lot of opportunities for all of those disciplines to work without having that using their license and not having access right. to the medications right so nurses yeah. can go to clinics or online phone or physicians yeah. it's typically anesthesia right can get out of anesthesia yeah. go do something else pharmacists as well there's positions that don't put you in in touch with the hands on the meds all the time and so you they can recover keep their license and then keep themselves out of the temptation so to speak with everything right there in front of you in a hospital. So yeah, that's always the best, right. best outcome. Yeah. Tell me what, if, if you could set up the perfect scenario, let's say I do the auditing for you and I find someone that I think is potentially diverting and, um, there are a couple of things maybe, or maybe it's uh, an overall, I think, you know, I mean, sometimes it's, it's just so clear that, you know, you hardly even need an interview, right? You don't even care what their answer is. You know what's going on. But this is not the case, let's say, but there are a couple of policy violations. And um, I'm now turning it over to you for the interview process. How would you set that up? And what do you think is the best way to, to handle it with that healthcare worker? Okay. So, so first of all, I think that one thing that a lot of um, facilities do, a lot of organizations do, and, and I think it really um, negatively impacts the effectiveness of the interview is giving the user, the individual that we're wanting to talk to uh, a, a lot of time uh, prior to the interview. They have uh, that knowledge that it's going to come. They get that heads up, so to speak. Um, and I think that the first time that they really should be aware that they've been looked at, that they've been, you know, that we've drilled down and looked at their practices is when they're sitting down in front of you. Um, and the reason is, is because in an interview, um, a lot of times, uh, I would say the vast majority of the time, your answer lies in their behavior in the interview, not in their answer. Um, and so you you really want to sit down with that person and and have that conversation where you can see their initial reactions. You haven't given them time to uh, fabricate a story uh, or, or come up with some justification of why this is what it is. You want to have a very candid conversation with them in this interview. So when you sit down and you start to have this conversation, it needs to really be the first time they know there's a concern about that. Now, if it's somebody who's diverting, they're, they're already gonna be aware that there's a possibility somebody's going to come talk to them. If it is a person who has just violated policy through a sloppy practice or through uh, some type of policy ignorance, so to speak, or bad training, that'll become very clear when you first start asking questions. You'll start to see a difference in the behavior uh, between uh, you know the shock and the desire to make this right and a defiant person who is trying to justify why they did what they did and then possibly also conceal some other behavior. So uh, that's probably the first piece of the setup is having that person come to the table and not have any um, early notification that you're going to have that conversation, any heads up that you're going to want to talk to them about this or that it's being looked at. I like to have that kind of uh, be the first time they know that they're being talked to about it or looked at. Um, I would say the second part is obviously I feel like a, a, a trained individual uh, in interviews uh, and investigative interviews should be the person who's conducting that 
that meeting and conducting that interview. Um, interrogation, that word, gets a super bad reputation uh, because everybody watches cop shows. And so there we're all like, oh, the interrogation, we know what that means. You've got a phone yeah. book and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, what I am saying is I am not saying conduct the one light bulb swinging in a dark room kind of kind of questioning, but uh, interrogation basically really just means formal questioning. And, uh, and formal questioning is exactly what you're doing. You have an incident, uh, you have some pattern or you have some concerns about a practice. So you're going to sit down and you're going to ask them some very uh, scripted, some very, some, some are going to be more pointed than others, but there's going to be some questions there that you need answers for. Um, and so having somebody who does have experience in interviews and has some training in that, um, but also has the personality to, to go to that last step where the, the conversation or the encounter has to become, even if it's amicably confrontational, it has to confront the issue. It has to say, you know, here's what, here's what our problem is. And this is where we're at. And this is what our concern is. Um, and I think that is the gap a lot of facilities run into is they don't have someone who can take that last step and just say, Hey, it, we're we're at a point now where we need to have the pointed piece of the conversation the the piece that's not the most comfortable and then and move forward with that um and i think that's that's important um i do think that minimizing the number of people in this interview is important um you don't want to have um you don't want that person to have a ton of support and backup and, and people wanting to come to their protection, but you also don't want to have a lot of people in there and make that person feel attacked or cornered. Uh, you want to have them come in and understand the magnitude of this interview, the a magnitude of what's going on, um, but without it feeling like they have no other choice but to feel attacked or feel like they need to, to back away or be defensive. So there's a balance there where you need to make sure they understand how serious it is. And, and, uh, and I will say uh, when I conduct interviews, uh, mine are pretty pointed. They're pretty, they're, they're pretty to the point. And I say, Hey, you know, here's a behavior that we can't tolerate. It says their policy has been violated. Uh, there are certain things here that indicate possible patient harm. These are things that we, are concerned about and we can't continue to allow that behavior to continue this is your opportunity to explain what has happened this is your opportunity to tell us whatever you need to tell us and then from however this interview goes it dictates the action that comes next um and so that would that would be how i would kind of structure that i would want to sit down across from them and just have a very very clear and concise conversation that says, you know, I'm not here to hear you denying a bunch of things. I'm here to say, I have documentation and data that sends me in one direction. This is your opportunity to have a conversation about it. Let's do that. You had said minimize the people in the room. Do you typically have and want more than just yourself or if it were up to you would it just be you and the person 
Well, from the law enforcement perspective, you always want it to just be a one-on-one kind of conversation. Um, We don't work in that. We work in a much more diplomatic environment. And I think that that's actually, it's actually beneficial for everybody involved. Um, Obviously, uh, for liability reasons, I I don't believe in mixed gender, uh, you know, conversations behind closed doors. I do think that there should always be somebody witnessing, regardless of who is the uh, interviewer and who's being interviewed. Um, and, and I think that each facility can kind of look at their needs and decide somebody uh, for that position. I typically don't think it's a good idea to have a direct supervisor in the room with them um, because there is a very close relationship with that individual and their direct supervisor, typically that's going to be the most protective person for that individual. Um, now, that being said, it might be the next step. So if you have a shift supervisor who is over a particular nurse, so to speak, and then that unit has a supervisor over that shift supervisor, I believe that one level apart would be, you know, a little more beneficial. Um, so have, even if even if the supervisor isn't going to say anything in the room, is it still not a great idea? So, so I don't, I don't have a, a huge issue with it being the direct supervisor. I have just found in my experience that that person typically has a lot of personal investment when they come into the room. And I like to try my best to minimize the personal investment in the room. So uh, that being said, if I can find someone who is knowledgeable of the situation, but isn't um, necessarily very close to the individual, can be a little bit more objective, it helps on both sides. Um, And and, and I think that that's one of those, but I do like to have somebody who's knowledgeable on the practices and things like that, or is knowledgeable on the process that we're going through. Um, So, A lot of times I may have an employee relations or an HR representative in the room if I'm not having their supervisor in the room or the unit director in the room. I like to have at least one person who uh, can kind of be an advocate for the middle, so to speak, um, an advocate for the process more than it is for anyone else outside. Um, When you walk into the room as the interviewer, you are an advocate for that, that organization. You are there to protect the organization's liability. You're there to protect the organization's patients. And, and, and that's what you're there for, bottom line. That's just, that's how that works. And, and I think it's important sometimes to communicate that. You know, say, hey, look, I'm, I'm here to represent the organization. That's why I'm looking at the black and white. I'm looking at the data. And this is why we're having this conversation. I also believe that sometimes it's good to have an advocate for the process. So somebody who brings a a sense of balance to the room. So uh, if that person has questions, but they're not sure they want to ask the questions to the individual that's interviewing them, there's someone that you can kind of refer them to say, hey, this person can walk you through the administrative process. They can walk you through the blood and urine test, or they can walk you through the things like that. So they have someone who is not part of the spear, so to speak. Um, and I think that uh, in, in my experience, it's typically 
more effective and better on both sides if that person isn't uh, personally invested. So, and one of the reasons I say that is if I have a direct supervisor who's been working with the same employee for 10 years, and now we have a diversion situation and that person comes in and they sit through a very uncomfortable encounter, um, regardless of what the outcome is at the end, let's say that person comes in and immediately wants to admit and goes back into, you know, patient care after rehabilitation, or they go through a process of some sort, they then go back to shift work with the other person that was in the room during that encounter. Mm. And so that can't not change the dynamic of that relationship. It has to, it, it's, you know, and so they're not going to see the interviewer every day. They're not going to be on the unit working with that person every day. Um, and so uh, whether it be an interview that does end up with a uh, confirmed diversion and that person's either separated from employment or they go through for uh, uh, you know rehabilitation and they return, however that works out, they don't see the interviewer every day. They do see that other person in the room. If it's their direct supervisor, they're gonna see that person every day when they come back. Um, and so, but it also is, if it's not confirmed diversion, if it is a sloppy practice, if you do get through this interview and you realize that this this interview where you've been just kind of hammering in comes down to the fact that this person really needs retraining and they've got to go back through some type of remedial education. They still go back to shift work with whoever was in that room, if that's who you've picked. Um, and so I, I think that from my perspective, it doesn't matter for the interviewer as much who's in the room as it does for the person that's in there with them. Um, and I think that one of the things that we have to think about because we are in an industry that that cares about us people and, you know, does this type of, of, of work, you have to kind of try to maintain the integrity and the dignity of the person who's being interviewed, just in case this person really has, you know, done something that wasn't diversion. And you've got to allow them to return with some dignity to their unit. Um, and they're going to have a problem doing that more often if there's a person in the room that they're going to see every day than if there's not. And uh, that's an, Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Um, I mean, I definitely have thought about their dignity but not from that perspective. And I'm thinking, you know, for leadership at a facility that may feel it's best for at least the initial interview to be done by their direct supervisor and HR, that might be, you know, cause they, they look at it as you bring an outside investigator in or a consultant or whoever it is, somebody that they don't typically sure. deal with. So to them, right. it looks like an outsider. Like, why are you bringing in the big guns, right? Right. And leadership takes the approach of it's harsh. You know, we don't we don't want to be that harsh. We want to come across, you know, to help them. And yes, if they're doing it, we need to take care of it. They believe in the diversion program, and that's why they're supporting it. But at the same True. time, 
they feel that it's a little harsh to have that outside person coming in. And so they feel it's better that they have somebody that they've worked with and can ask those questions. So it's an interesting perspective that you take that it's almost to the to the um, suspected diverters detriment to have that because then they have to see that person. Well, I think that for the the person being interviewed, whether they are a diverter or not, either way, Right. And, and and I do I do think that there is an argument for having someone that they know in there. But having done uh, hundreds of interviews in hospitals now, I have found that when you do that, the person that's being interviewed feels like the hospital or the healthcare facility has made it personal. You've brought people in that I work with and you've allowed them to basically levy an accusation against me. And now I have to go back to work with these people. And so you've made it personal. Um, mm -hmm. And so when you bring in that objective person, while administration and the executive board and the leaders in the hospital see that as a heavy, they see it as we're yep. bringing in this guy and this person, yep. or this, this lady, that yep. we're bringing in the heavy, the big guns, like you said, when they see it that way, it's actually, um, and it can depend on how you handle the interview. But uh, sure. what I try to do is when you go in, you say, hey, I'm here because I am to be the objective person. I don't work with you. I don't work with them. I am literally just here to look at the data and tell you what I see. And there's no personal aspect to it. There's no personal angle. You know, you and I have never been at a Christmas party together. We've never done this. You know, we've never, we've never hung out together. We're, we're not, our kids don't play little league to get that kind of thing. So, but when, when a facility does send their direct supervisor in or someone else from HR that they've worked with for years, in, in many of those people's eyes, that organization has now made it a personal issue. Interesting. So very, very interesting perspective. And do you have a feel for, from a statistical perspective, either your own experience or just your training, is somebody, if somebody is diverting, are they more likely to admit it to the stranger interviewer than they are their direct supervisor? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that still comes back to the personal connection. Uh, we all like to say, well, if I'm if I'm close to these people or I've got a personal connection to them, I'm more likely to admit it. And that's not accurate at all. That's that's not how we do things. I mean, well, the personal connector feels I would think like, you know, let me help you. Let me get you. You know, you like you can appeal right. to that action. Well, and unfortunately, a personal connection builds our pride meter which means you know me, so I need you to think there's nothing wrong with me. Okay. I need you to, and you know me, but you also know 17 of my other friends. Yeah. And while I believe that you're not going to tell anybody, I kind of believe you are. Yeah. You know, and this person that I don't know is, this person has no connection to anybody I know. This person is just here to hear me out and it doesn't go further than these walls. I don't even know this person. Um, I mean, we, we like to think that uh, the personal connections make us 
uh, more likely to open up, but I'm pretty sure we've seen spring break and Mardi Gras a million times. You get in a place full of strangers and you do things you wouldn't do when you're around your close yeah. friends. So I, I think that what we look at there is uh, we like to believe that that personal connection is going to help us, is going to is going to bring it out. And in times it does. And I think there is to be there should be a balance in some of that. But uh, in my experience, I have found that a lot of times that objective outsider, so to speak, is the person that comes in and has that conversation and can can kind of hit some of the harder, heavier questions and get answers to them um, just because they don't have an investment to tell you or not tell you. They can say whether or not they want to. Um, in fact, if I have a personal connection to somebody and I want to tell somebody, but my pride is in the way, if I have a personal connection to you, I'm less likely to say it as than I am if I have no clue who you are. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a great perspective. That's very good food for thought. Do you have an idea on what percentage of the time you get somebody to admit when you by the data and their behaviors and everything, you're pretty convinced that they are diverting. What percentage of the time would you say you actually get an admission? Uh, so I will preface this with the fact that there are roughly 20 years of investigations and training yeah. and advice there. So, uh, and, and so, my, so don't compare myself to you. Uh, well, I, I think that, I think that one thing that we look at is the, the style change here. Um, as I, as I said before, I am typically a little more pointed with some of my questions and I, I am diplomatic. I do have this conversation in a very calm manner and explain things uh, way before I really get into the meat of an interview. Um, but uh, I, I would say, um, uh, out probably somewhere around 80 percent mm. um, and and maybe higher and now that being said I like to give credit where it's due and um, I have been super fortunate to go through some very effective uh, interviews and interrogations courses um, uh, you know my like I said before my my master's is in forensic psychology so I definitely lean towards the, the psychological aspects and certain behaviors and ways to recognize certain things. So I've really, I've really kind of uh, honed my skills over the years. And a lot of that, a lot of that 20% came from my early years of interviewing where I, I could see certain behaviors and I could be like, Hey, I learned this in, in one of those classes and I know you're not telling me the truth, but I had not gained the experience to be able to really exploit that piece yet and say, Hmm, where can I pull the trigger and get that person to admit to me? Um, I recall very early in my career when I was still doing criminal investigations, I'm pretty sure that the guy I was interviewing was sitting on the edge of his seat, wanting me to ask the right question so that he could admit things. And I just, I couldn't put the right question together. So I, I do see how, as, as you get more experience in it and you do push those numbers up. Um, but, uh, I would say, um, I've been very lucky over the last several years, and especially once I got into healthcare drug aversion, um, to be able to see certain behaviors and certain uh, flags, so to speak, to say, hey, I, I, I think I'm where I need to be to ask the right question. Um, and I've also worked for organizations 
that were uh, supportive enough to allow me to ask those questions, allow me to do those interviews in a certain way. Um, so I think that uh, some of some of my success has really been a totality of circumstances where I was kind of given an environment where I could be successful. So I think, you know, for some people are going to be working in healthcare systems where diplomacy is king and you can't ask certain things in a certain way, um, then you have to find a way to do that interview a little differently and try to dig those answers out a, a different way than I necessarily would be able to in my position. Okay. Well, I'll be more patient with myself then. I've been doing the auditing and that part of investigating for years, but the interviewing I've recently started with and my success rate is, well, we will just say not even close to your 80%, but I will be patient. It's hard to, it, it's even when you're first learning, it's hard to watch for the behaviorals while you're talking and listening and everything at the same time. So that definitely comes with, uh, comes with time. So, so I will, I will I, be patient. Well, well, I would, I would, I'll say there's a couple of easy tips. Um, and, and one is when you are doing the interviews and a lot of people don't really write on paper the way I still do, because I'm just kind of old school that way. But, um, I typically like to, first of all, if you're convinced of diversion and the, the data is leading you in that direction, um, go into that interview confident in the fact that that is what has occurred and that is the behavior that has went. Um, when you go in uh, questioning yourself, then you're already putting yourself at a disadvantage. So when you when you walk in there and, and you're pretty convinced that the information is giving you what it is, that information was black and white before you walked into that room and it had you convinced of what had happened, then it's still black and white when you sit down at the table with the same person. And so stay with that confidence. Um, the second thing is um, I found that innocent people, people that have not done it, may ask you a question, but are not going to feel silence all day. Guilty people feel silence. If you ask a question, I don't care if you're writing your grocery list. I don't care what you're writing on that pad. Bring it close to you and start writing and just wait. And a person who has been diverting, a person who feels like they have something to hide, they will start with their justification story. They will start with something else. They will fill that silence with something. And that is your first behavior you'll recognize. If you just ask the first question or give your first statement, give them the first area of concern and then just stop, that is that is going to be your first behavioral key uh, that'll flag up is they'll want to fill that silence with something. Okay. Well, I'll try that one. I haven't tried that one yet. I'll remember yeah. that. Give it a shot. Let me know how it works. All right. I will. All right. Thank you so much, Russ, for your time yes, today. Thank you.